On this episode of My Therapy, we're speaking with Colette Smith. She is a mental health advocate and was part of an art exhibit in Calgary. Learn more in the episode. On the phone, joining us in the podcast today is Colette Smith. Colette, you're in Calgary? No, I'm in Edmonton, just Edmonton. north, uh, about three hours oh, north of Calgary. a grave insult, yeah. Justin. Freud, Freudian just... slip there? <laughs> oh, rough start, Calgary. rough start. Oh, dear. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I, I said Calgary because uh, the reason why we're talking to you today is uh, you had a, uh, a piece in a, in, a, in a newspaper in Calgary, Star Metro Calgary, is that correct? That's correct, yes. Yeah. That was based on a photo voice presentation that was first put in a neuroscience convention, Alberta Neuroscience Convention, in Calgary in October 2017, and was later made a permanent display at the Matheson Center for Mental Health Research and Education in Calgary uh, in May of 2018. And the interview was based on that, the opening, the grand opening of that display. Excellent. So I have a bit of relief here that I didn't just make up a Calgary <laughs> tie-in. So, okay, I feel a little bit No. Excellent. Uh, okay, yeah, so uh, I put out a call a while ago to uh, to anyone on Twitter, said I, I, we want to tell anybody's story that has a has a uh, mental illness or mental health-related uh, story. And uh, mm-hmm. you were one that reached out to me. Uh, so this is kind of our series of ordinary people doing the extraordinary. Uh, that I just made that up. Uh, uh, latest edition is Colette Smith. Thank you for joining us. So, based on this article, yeah. So you uh, you were part of a uh, an art exhibit uh, based in in mental mm-hmm. in mental health. Can you tell us a little bit more about it? The call was put out through a an email list that I'm on, looking for people with mental illness, specifically depression, who would be willing to put their experience of of depression into photography, which is where the term photo voice comes from. It didn't have to be necessarily pictures of medication or of a doctor or anything that one would normally think of as being part of mental illness, but anything that spoke to us, and there was about six or seven of us, that would give voice or give an explanation as to how we feel or how we live with our depression. And then those pictures were put up as part of the neuroscience convention. Um, The neuroscience convention is where neuroscience specialists, researchers, and students get together and discuss the newest things, newest research coming down on neurology, psychiatry, anything to do with the brain. And the one evening there was a student presentation where all the students had their pictures, or not really pictures, but a display of their research to date. And around the room where these displays were all set up were our pictures. And the head of the Matheson Center was there, and he talked to Brad Nesick, who was the one who brought us all together, and there was discussion of making it a permanent display which happened about seven months later. That's fantastic. So there must have been uh, some, some interest in it. Do you, have any, do you know the backstory to why they decided to make it a permanent display? I don't know exactly why. I know that the 
um, gentleman who is at the Matheson Center was very impressed with our pictures. The way that it brought out the ex- the experience of depression and how it worked to decrease the stigma around mental illness. And he wanted those, and Brad was also willing to negotiate with this um, to bring it to life to be a permanent thing. He wanted it to be, Brad wanted it to be permanent so that people could see what those of us living with depression, how we view ourselves in the world. Awesome. So this is a kind of a high profile thing and it got some play uh, from that newspaper in Calgary. Um, Mm -hmm. Was this, uh, was this just a public call to get you uh, interested in it and you kind of just reached out or did you have a, a direct connection uh, with this project beforehand? No, I had nothing to do with it beforehand. Brad had done other photo voices before um, as part of his uh, education. He has been working in photography and the arts, that kind of thing. He did one for people. He asked for people who were going through uh, following their love in the dying process. And he explained that one to us. But this came through as an email where I get at least once a week an email looking for people to help with something within the healthcare system. I've also mentored two medical students for two years through that same email list. There have been call-outs for people to come on committees, things like that. So I had no idea. I didn't know who Brad was. I didn't know what a photo voice was even when I got this email and reached out saying that it would be interesting. You called it a photo voice? They called it a photo voice, what yes. It's mean? using photography to give, I guess, to give words or to give expression to one's experience. It's a really, I mean, to me, it may, maybe it's not a unique concept, but it just seems like a really unique concept to me. I haven't really heard anything like this before, and it was cool that uh, they're using art to try to tell the story uh, of mental illness in people. And before we move on to your pieces and, and, the, and the backstory behind them, um, mm-hmm. do, you, do you know why they picked you and why they used, I think you said it was 13 pieces and they used four of yours. Do you, do you have any idea why they were so interested in, in having you such a big part of it? Or uh, how did that kind of play out? I don't, I don't know. I, I, we were told we could each have three pieces, two to three pieces. And as I took my pictures, I've, I got it down to four but I couldn't pick which one to purge. And so I emailed my pictures to Brad, and I said, you pick which one goes, and I will respect your decision. And he emailed me back later that day. He said, I can't pick either. He said, they're all going into the display. Wow. How did so, that, that make you feel? That's kind of unique that he's just like, no, they're all, I like them all, we're going to use them all. I was kind of shocked. Um, I'm not much of a photographer. I'm the point-and-shoot kind of person. I don't usually get the really fancy pictures or anything really deep. And so for him to see that kind of value in the pictures was an honor and a surprise. Did you only submit four? I submitted four. Wow. And I gave him the option to delete one or two of them. And he chose to keep four. That, that's, pre- that's pretty powerful that he thought that much of them, that he wanted to use all of them. Uh, like, uh, good for you. Yeah. Uh, so let's get into them. One... Sorry, sorry, what were sure. you going to say? No, before we get into them, what no. were you going to say there? There was one other that I had taken a picture of, and I chose to delete it. So there could have been five, 
And I think if I had sent five, the one that I deleted, he would have chosen to delete as well because it just didn't have the same impact, the same background, the same hit as the other four did. That's great. And yeah, just go push forward with your best best four. I like that. Uh, so yeah. let's uh, let's get into them. You have four pieces in this uh, exhibit. Uh, can you mm-hmm. can you outline them for us? Kind of describe what they are and the, and the backstory behind them. Okay, where do you want me to start? Uh, well, I'm looking Which at one, one? here. Uh, it says sometimes there are no words. Let's start there. Sometimes there are no words. That picture was taken just of a sympathy card I found in a Carlton card store, and it brings out what so many of us with depression both hear and think. Um, People will say, well, what do you have to be depressed about? And there are no words because really my life is very good. Why haven't you gotten back to work yet? Well, I can't really tell you because my illness isn't responding the way it's supposed to. And then I look at myself and why am I so depressed when there is so much beauty in the world and in my life? And, you know, I had, I have a loving family. I have a warm home. I have everything I need. So why, when there is all that good and beauty around me, do I still feel so awful so much of the time? Why is there this pain? Why is there this resistance? Why am I hurting when there is so much good? And that is what the, there is, sometimes there are no words came from. That's very meaningful to me because, um, like I, what, what I think of when you, when you talk about that is, uh, that even people that are well-intended, people that, uh, you love, people that care about you, that want the best for you often can talk in those terms, um, just not maybe they haven't experienced what you've experienced and they just, they, they're not in your shoes. They don't really know uh, what those words mean when they say, you know, what do you have to be depressed about and things like that. So um, that's a, that's a very powerful one to start off. Um, in most cases, yeah. I honestly don't think the people are trying to be rude or hurtful. Yeah. that's what, yeah, I think yeah. it is. Yeah. Like you were saying, it's not an, it's not an attempt to be rude or hurtful. They just can't, understand just like sometimes I can't understand why doesn't my brain respond why am I still depressed this has been a long time that I've been struggling with this so why is it still I'm doing everything right I ask my doctors about three times a year what am I doing wrong and they say you're not you're doing everything we're asking of you and then some Hmm. your brain just it can't respond to what we have right now Hmm. That's a so that's an interesting way to start this off because um, I just think about the the whole intention behind this art project is kind of to bring light to what uh, what mental illness and what mental health issues uh, feel like and look like. Trying uh, to kind of tying that story in a new way that maybe reaches people that wouldn't otherwise experience it. And uh, I think you've done a good job with that one in your explanation of. of um, you know, why, why you submitted that one as part of the project. Um, Yeah, that was when I was, it it hit me right away when I saw the card. You know, there are no words. And that has been for a long time. I've got nothing. What am I doing wrong? Mm. Well, there's no words for what I'm doing wrong, because I'm doing nothing wrong. 
why is the world so dark? I have no words for that because it makes no sense when I have everything that is good. I mean, life is not perfect, but it is not something horrible either. Before I move on to the next one, I'm just curious, what was mm-hmm. your process? Because like, this one's a photo of a sympathy card, um, and then your, your other, there's another photo. It's just a, uh, it's a picture of some writing. Uh, what was your process going into this, and like, how did you determine what we were going to take photos of, and how did, like, just how did you go about it? At first, I had no idea how I was going to do it because I had never heard of a photo voice either. And quite a few of us who had offered to join the project emailed and said, okay, how do we do this? What do we take pictures of? And he said, just go with your camera, take pictures. He said, use your camera, use your phone, whatever, and take pictures that speak to you, of things that speak to you. And then lay them out on your computer, look at them, and which ones do you feel bring your story to light? And so that is how most of the pictures came to be. One of them was taken before the photo voice, and that's probably the next one we're moving on to, Muted Joy. The rest were taken after the call for the photo voice, and I took a lot of pictures of different things in the mall, outdoors, in the home, and it came down to those four. So, like, when we're talking about the sometimes there are no words one, uh, you just kind of mm-hmm. happened upon that? You weren't necessarily looking You weren't necessarily no. looking to capture a photo? You just saw that and you thought, that really, that resonates with me? Yes. I was going through mm-hmm. the mall, going for a bit of a walk, stopped in at the card store, and I don't even know why I was looking at sympathy cards. I don't usually look at them <laughs> unless I need them. Just no particular and... reason, just browsing? Yeah, just nice. browsing, and this one stood out. Sometimes there are no words, and it's, yes, exactly. Cool. Okay. And when somebody dies for whatever reason, depression or not, there's often nothing anyone can say. And with depression, living it for as long as I have, there's nothing really left to say anymore because there are no words for what I'm going through because it is so internal and because there's really no answers. Kind of brings it all together very succinctly. Right. Uh, let's move on to the next one. I believe this one is called Muted Joy. It's the picture. It's a selfie yes. of you. Uh, can you tell yes. us about this one? That one was in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, which was a beautiful place we traveled to in the summer of 2017. And I muted that picture down to just short of black and white. It had been a full-color picture. And in the picture, I'm smiling at the camera, and I've got the falls behind me and the hills and all of these different, all of the different landscapes. And I'm smiling, and yet the joy and happiness I would expect to feel in such a beautiful place with the trip we had taken and the people we had met and everything else wasn't really there. I would maybe say I was content but I wasn't joyful, I wasn't happy. And it's frustrating because I want to experience and enjoy and engage with places I go and people I meet and things like that, but the depression often mutes how I can respond to the places and people that I interact with. 
I want to see everything, but I can't fully see or appreciate it. This one's very powerful because for all intents and purposes, you look like you're having a good time. And, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, it looks like everything's okay. And I think that that speaks volumes because often, um, you know, people with depression, you see people uh, dying by suicide and people are like, they seem so happy. And, uh, you know, this kind of speaks to that, that, you know, you look happy. You look like there's there's nothing wrong, Mm -hmm. not a care in the world, but yet you're not feeling it. I mean, I wouldn't say I was in a horrible spot at that time, but if I had been, that would have probably been a black and white photo. But everything was muted. Nothing was 100%. And so the duller colors in the picture speak to that and show that, okay, yes, I'm here, and there is beauty all around me, but it's not a full enjoyment that I can experience because of the depression. And the effects of it. With depression comes fatigue. With depression can come difficulty being in strange places, things like that. And so I had all of that going on, and yet it was beautiful there. But all those things kind of took over and brought me from a 9-10 that most people would be looking at that beautiful scenery down to about a 3-4. So one question that comes to mind is... um... Mm -hmm. And not to be uh, ignorant or offensive when I say this, I, I'm just generally, genuinely curious that um, why you're smiling. That uh, is that is this just a forced smile? Just because you're taking a photo, you're smiling. Just I'm curious on your thoughts on that. Yes, it was a it was um, you know I was always taught smile for the camera, and so when I took the selfie, I smiled. And like I say, there was a degree of enjoyment, but it was a 3-4 compared to the 9-10 that most would experience. And so there was a little bit of something there, and so I was able to bring up the smile. But there was a degree of force to it, and there was also a degree of, you know, smile for the camera, being trained to not sulk or put my, you know, show a sad face or anything. There are other pictures, most of the pictures, that was the only selfie I took that day, are of the landscape and of everything else. So I didn't have to be in the picture and smiling when I was more numb than anything. Hmm. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, on your third photo, uh, it's uh, I'm looking at a photo of uh, gravestones. Uh, can you tell us about yes. this one? Dead and broken. One of the headstones is crumbling. The other one is up, still upright, but they're both very old. I'd guess that they would be late 1800s, early 1900s. And with both of them, of course, had uh, gravestones. Below them, there is nothing but death. And when I saw those, it brought to mind for me how much my illness has taken away. I haven't been able to work. I don't spend much time with friends or do things I enjoy. I have very little interest in anything that I used to, and my emotions are often muted, so my ability to feel care, feel, to feel in general, to care and sometimes even to feel love are not there. So it's like I'm walking around, but I'm not really here. It's like I'm dead but not buried. I see people going through and having their normal life, And I watch them, you know, with their kids, and I watch them go to work, and I watch them in their different activities, and I can't really identify 
with what they're doing, what their lives are, because none of that makes sense to me because it's not been a part of my life for so long. And in a way, at times I feel like I'm damaged goods. I'm broken, I'm crumbling, I'm coming apart. But it's on the inside where no one can see. Just like when you look at a grave, you can't see the body underneath or the bones or whatever. All you see is the gravestone. Hmm. So people can look at me and everything could seem fine. I mean, in that same cemetery, there's some beautifully polished gravestones. Everything looks fine, but again, underneath, inside, there's nothing but death. And while I'm still alive and not suicidal, there is that feeling of not being fully alive, of being limp, of being numb. And so sometimes it is almost like a walking death. And on this one, uh, I'm just curious, was this was this an idea that you had before you took the photo? Did you just this come kind of come to you as you were walking by a graveyard? Like what what was your thought process on this one? I wanted to go to a cemetery. I knew that. Um I love cemeteries as it is. And so I thought that it, there could be some ideas there. I wanted to preserve the privacy of the people who were buried there, so the newer gravestones I couldn't use. And as I was walking through our community, the area where I live, actually just north of Edmonton, was first settled by the Oblates, a Catholic group of priests in the late 1800s, early 1900s. So there are some very old gravestones there. And those two side by side, the one crumbling almost into the other, was what I saw, and it just, yes, that is it. It took a little bit to find the words for it, but when I saw it, that was what I wanted. That was what I was looking for. When you say, yes, this was it, what's, what's going through your mind as you're, as you're looking at this and then you decide you're going to snap that photo? What were, you, what were you kind of piecing together in your head? I was looking at the headstones, And I saw the one tilting over, it's broken in half and rather ruggedly. The other one's still standing tall, but you can tell it's old. And that was how, especially the broken one, I could identify with. It's been toppled, it's been beaten by the elements, it's been beaten by who knows what. And it's trying to stand, it's fallen apart a little bit, it's still there, and that physically is kind of how I feel, that I'm broken, I'm dragging, I'm coming apart. The other one beside it is still standing, and so it's kind of a, a paradox. I feel like I'm broken, I feel like I'm falling apart, and yet to everyone else I'm still standing. And yet underneath where no one can see, there's death, there's very little life, there's numbness, that kind of thing. There's a lot of interesting thought put into this, and I, I appreciate your uh, your insight on that. A uh, couple of things that strike me when I look at this photo, um, further to what you've said, is one of them is that, uh, well, the one, the the gravestone on the left is broken, and is, it mm-hmm. appears to have been broken for a very long time. And yeah. uh, when I look at that, if you want to draw a parallel to mental illness and how we perceive ourselves, um, 
often we feel like, you know, you're broken and, and no one's going to check up on you, so to speak. And not mm-hmm. that not that that's necessarily true, because I think that we all have loved ones that uh, that care and uh, mm-hmm. want us and want the best for us. It's just that when we're when we're not at our best, we tend to isolate and think that nobody cares. And that kind of speaks to that a little bit. I think that that's what I take from it is that this is this is uh, this is broken and uh, nobody cares to go and fix it. Right. Uh, the other, I can understand that. Yes. Yeah, and the other the other piece that I. Uh, I take from this is just the obvious, and that is that uh, that mental illness takes lives. And um, did, was that part of the reasoning why you d- decided to go to a graveyard in the first place? Is that you know death is a very real thing associated with mental illness? It is. I didn't think of that so much initially because I knew that I wouldn't be able to find out any causes of death in that graveyard. But even before my illness became very severe, I loved cemeteries and have always been very comfortable with death. I actually have worked in the post-mortem field. And so cemeteries have always given me some peace. And I know at times when I lived uh, in a different community, when I was feeling very poorly and my depression was getting really bad, I would go walk the cemetery and spend sometimes a couple hours there visiting the different people I knew and looking to see who knew was buried there. And so it is kind of a comforting place. What was it about cemeteries that you that you liked? Just the, just the, the history, I guess, and going around and, just like you said, linking the people? The history, the peacefulness. I volunteered at a nursing home for many years, and so we lost a lot of residents, and they were pretty much all buried in that cemetery. And so it was kind of going to visit old friends. I could find out different things about the history of our area when I lived in the other community. Again, some of the headstones went back to the late 1800s, early 1900s. And then as I would look things up and learn, and, you know, there are some interesting stories here. But with this particular picture shoot, I had to be very careful not to show, or I wanted to be careful not to show the names or the identities of the persons on the headstones because their story, you know, it is more the stone than the name that caught to me. I like that. And I like that you have a backstory of how much you enjoy uh, visiting um, cemeteries and why, uh, because uh, it, when I look at this photo, all I see is uh, two uh, old and broken headstones. But when you have your your written description along with it, and now your verbal uh, explanation, as well as the fact that you just enjoy going to cemeteries, it becomes very personal. And I really appreciate that. There was a woman um, that I got to know at the nursing home, and she we got to be good friends. And she lived with bipolar disorder, and I didn't know this. I was 13, 12. And the volunteer coordinator called my mom and said, tell Colette she is not to have anything to do with this woman anymore because she's bipolar and will hurt her. And my mom said, I will not tell her that. I will tell her what bipolar disorder is. I will explain that her friend has this and what to maybe expect, but I will not tell her to leave her alone and to abandon her. Hmm. And so when I go to the cemetery, she's been gone now several years. I'll go find her headstone first 
because she was kind of the first person that I really got to know who lived with mental illness. And I saw her in her ups, I saw her in her downs. And other than the staff at the nursing home, I was the last person to see her alive. So she was kind of a, an adopted auntie to me. Hmm. And we were very close. And to see that degree of stigma and almost hatred from the volunteer coordinator, I just couldn't believe. And that also ties in with this picture where am I that hated? Am I that dead to people? that I'm an abandoned gravestone with no one around. Uh, when you uh, created this bond with this woman, did, was this? Uh, were you aware back when you were a child that, that you had some uh, mental health concerns of your own? I was starting to get an idea. I did not get a formal diagnosis until I was 17. But I was very, very sensitive as a young child. And due to bullying at school, I started to develop depression about age 12 and anxiety. And PTSD followed shortly thereafter. So I knew things weren't quite right. I didn't have a name for them. And so I was just trying to struggle through. The bullying wouldn't stop. The school refused to step in. And so I just had to fight my way through and yet I was having all of these terrible feelings that I couldn't explain. But after what had happened with my friend kind of had a sense that maybe it's not something to talk about. Was this, uh, was this something that uh, you mentioned that your mom, I believe you said it was your mom that uh, kind of said, that's not how we're going to treat this woman. We're going to basically yeah. treat her with respect. Was that was uh, mm -hmm. mental illness and mental health something that your family talked about growing up? Or it just seems like your your mom was maybe already kind of aware that we need to treat people with dignity and respect. It wasn't probably that common. We, it hadn't happened yet, but in my family now to date, there have been three suicides. Three cousins have died in various means by suicide. I don't know all the details, but that has happened. There has been... Uh, reasonable a reasonable amount of addiction in my mom's generation and the generation above with alcohol mostly some drugs i am the first in the family to be open about mental illness and my mental illness specifically but when my cousins died i was told very clearly you know they died by suicide they took their own life we don't understand why, but they were very depressed or they were having trouble with drugs and alcohol, whatever. And it was just discussed as if they had died of cancer or of any other illness. That said, it took me a very long time to open up with my own issues. Hmm. There was a fear in me, I think, I don't know for sure, but I remember wondering if I would lose support if I came out. Because in my mind, even though it was talked about so plainly and so calmly and so, I won't say positively, but it wasn't a thing to be vilified. In my mind, because it was me, I'm obviously weak and terrible and horrible, and people won't tolerate that. And that kept me from opening up and seeking help, and even telling my parents for quite a while. 
Um, I want to get into more about uh, about your personal story in a moment. We'll, we'll just go through the uh, the rest of these uh, or the, the final photo, and then we'll get mm-hmm. into uh, to you specifically in, in your backstory because I want to know more about that. Um, there's a couple of things that you just said that I want to touch on. Um, but before we go on to the last photo, uh, on on the bit about uh, your relationship with this lady with bipolar, uh, yes. as someone who you kind of were starting to feel like maybe you're a little bit different at that age, um, and then you had your diagnosis later, do you, do you think that you created this bond with this woman because you had some kind of a uh, kinship with her? It could well be. She, there was something special about her. And at first I could not understand what it was. It was just that she kind of drew me to her without really trying. She could talk very openly. She was happy to visit. And she never had any family, and I never really understood why. She never had anyone visit. She had children that I knew of but I never saw or heard of them coming to see her. And I was innocent. I didn't think of the hows and whys. But then when the phone call came to the house where don't don't let Colette near her anymore, okay, that may explain, but she was still her to me. She didn't change just because I knew that she had bipolar disorder. I still loved her just as much. And the last thing I would do, I would have gone against that volunteer coordinator's orders to see her and to visit her. If anything, I wanted to see her more because now, okay, you have this illness and it seems that you've got no one. And maybe, yeah, there was some kinship there. I started to understand even though I didn't have the word for how I was feeling and what depression was, I could sense from her something wasn't quite right, and maybe with me it's the same thing. Now, my diagnosis is not fully bipolar, but I have had some bipolar uh, symptoms, and so it is quite possible that some energy from her or just some things she said or things I picked up on let me know that there was a kindred spirit there. Uh, To me, the idea that uh, her family was kind of removed from her and and that just kind of drew you closer seems really unique to me. What roughly what time period was this, that this was, uh, this took place? She died in 1988. So it was like in the 80s? Just before the spring. The Winter Olympics in Calgary started. Okay, so it was kind of in the eighty mid early eighties. Yeah, um, mid mid to late eighties. Okay. She died February of eighty eight. I got to know her in eighty six. Again, and maybe it's because your family had a history of mental illness, and that uh, like as we already spoke about how your your mom seems to be uh, seem to be more kind of aware of the sensitivities around it. That um, mm-hmm. it just it, it strikes me that in the in the late '80s that you didn't really have any reservations about bipolar disorder, and that just made you want to be kind of more caring towards this woman. Well, the way Mom described it, it was you know she will at times become very depressed and very sad, and other times she may seem very agitated, very overly happy, or even maybe a bit irritable, 
And it's not her fault. It's not your fault. It's just what her brain and her illness is doing to her. So it was very matter-of-fact. It was very factual. And there was no fear or anything else brought into it. It was just, this is how she is. This is what the illness is like. And it's okay. Just so you know what to expect. If one day she snaps at you, it's not you. If one day she's crying and you haven't said anything, it's not your fault. It's this illness working in her, and she needs your love and support. Wow, that's that's really uh, that's interesting. Thank you for sharing that. Um, let's move on to the uh, to the last photo, and this one really struck me, and it's a uh, it's pretty powerful. It's very basic. It's uh, it's mm-hmm. some written some written quotes on a, on a piece of paper and, but it's just mm-hmm. what it says and what it means and the backstory behind it is very striking. Can you tell us about it? There are five quotes. All of them have been said, spoken to me by psychiatrists from the time I was 19 until 2013. And you never ask a lady her age. <laughs> so we'll leave it at that. Uh, The first one is, you just don't want to get better. You enjoy being sick. Unfortunately, I don't respond well to most medications and therapies. And if I do respond, it's usually fairly short-lived. So I would come back and see a psychiatrist after not seeing them for a while, or I'd be readmitted to hospital. And, well, I've done this, I've done this, I've done this. And I'd resist maybe on one little thing, or I wouldn't resist at all, and just, well, you just don't want to get better. If you wanted to get better, you would get better. And so there was the blame put on the patient, on me, saying that I didn't want to get better, even though I have tried everything my doctors have said and then some over the years. That one really blows me away, because, I mean, you're in the office, you're you're kind of pleading for help, and... Mm-hmm. That takes what I've been told is that 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 takes strength in and of itself. That you didn't, you know, you, hypothetically you could just pack it in, but you, you know you were making the effort to say, "Hey, please help me." And yeah. your 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 response is, "Well, you just you don't want to get better." That just seems completely opposite to me. Yes, exactly, and that doctor. You'll hear more from him later. Okay. (laughs) The next one was a fun one. I had been with this doctor in therapy for seven years, and it was getting clear that she was, we were not working out well together anymore. And some of her ways of doing therapy for me were starting to not mesh. They were feeling kind of flaky, and she seemed very possessive of me. I was not to talk with, my pastors, I was not to talk with my GP, I was not to talk to anyone except her about mental health things. And that just wasn't working anymore because I needed a wider range of support. And so I told her that I wanted a referral to another doctor. If for nothing else than just for a second opinion, but maybe for a transfer out. And she said to me, well, you know, I should tell you something. I've been thinking the last week, and I've come to a point of wisdom. 
I've been lying to you about your diagnosis all this time from the first day I saw you because I was a young grad and I wanted you to like me and continue in therapy with me. And that was seven years of her saying, well, this is what's wrong. Let's try these medications. And then all of a sudden she says, oh, no, she says it's actually something totally different. And now we can continue together in therapy. (laughs) Seems grossly negligent. Uh Uh-huh. Maybe even malpractice. Yeah. Wow. So she was a fun one. And some of the things she came up with while we were in therapy were downright bizarre. So, and more so as we went over time, she got stranger and stranger and stranger, plus, like I was said, very possessive. Without venturing and, off too far, like, what do you mean when you say that she's, like, some of the strange things? <sighs> oh. If, if you don't the want to go that, there, we don't have to go there. No, no, either. no, no. The one that stands out, um, I she was big on dreams. What dreams and meant? On what dreams meant. Okay. And whenever I had a dream, she would always, well, she'd always ask about dreams. And if I asked, or if I told her something, well, what do you think that means? I don't know. Well, it means this. And... It would usually be so far off anything that would have to do with me, it it meant, it was like, what? So the one time I had a dream that I was holding a newborn directly against my chest, so like kangaroo care that they call it in uh, neonatal intensive care unit. And I was holding this baby against my chest, and I just had a pair of jeans on, and I'm holding this infant. And she said, well, what do you think that means? And I said, I don't know. It's a dream of me holding a baby. And she said, I think it means that you're finally getting in touch and becoming comfortable with your sexuality. <sighs> Except that we'd never talked about my sexuality before. Yeah, who does, who's to say you weren't already? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Bizarre. I mean, we had never discussed it. It had never come up. Weird. Or if it did, it was a question, do you like guys or girls? That was as far as that discussion had ever gone. Another time, just after this, Um, I saw her two or three times after just to kind of close things off. And she had a drawing on her wall, a painting, very block style, of a cityscape with smokestacks on the apartment buildings in this cityscape and some birds flying overhead that were just simple lines, two curved lines to make a bird. And I'm looking at this picture because I'm not speaking to her much. I'm mad at her. And I start laughing. And she asked what the laughing was about. And I explained a story that my dad and I had going back and forth. My dad, who's now been gone just about 10 years, was willing to pay good money for what he deemed to be worth good money. But for anything else was quite cheap. And he would go on and on and on that he didn't want an expensive funeral, just burn him and, you know, find the cheapest way, cremate him, throw him in the ground, whatever. And one day I got a little bit tired of this because it had become quite a regular discussion point. And I said, Dad, you've got a, you've got a good barbecue. I'll just take care of you with your barbecue. And he laughed. He loved the idea. <laughs> 
course, you can't cremate anyone with a barbecue, but he loved the idea. And then as I'm looking at the birds overhead, I said that they looked like stealth bombers, which they kind of did. And she said, whoa, she said, you know, those two things together sound very aggressive towards your father. I wonder if he sexually assaulted you when you were a child. Oh, just go right we there. We can talk wow. about this in therapy. Okay. Pardon? Is it, she, she's cut right to it. Like, just not, uh, not even going yeah. to not even gonna be soft about it. Just, like, just make assumptions. Yeah, okay. exactly. Wow. And, I mean, my dad and I, like I say, I worked in the postmortem field. And having been a nurse as well as working in postmortem, my humor... Yeah is dark. I have to watch it. <laughs> Dad was a farm boy, so he helped, you know, when it was time to get the chickens or the cows or whatever ready to go to market, he had to do that, or sometimes they'd slaughter right on the farm. So we kind of had a bond over dark humor. And that was just our dark humor between us. I think it's perfectly normal. But she took it immediately to be a feeling of anger towards him and an assumption that he had harmed me. Bizarre. Yeah. Wow. So, number three, your symptoms aren't getting worse, it's just your personality. That was a fun one, too. Different psychiatrist. I have a disorder called premenstrual dysphoric disorder. It is an error in how the genes respond to the female hormones in the body and their fluctuations. And it had been under the radar for quite a few years. It had been subclinical and had suddenly become fully awake. And so every so many weeks to a month, I would become ragey. I would have self-harm issues. I would be either shouting at people or I would be pacing. It just was not pretty. And normally I was flat, depressed, numb, those things that we talked about before with the picture um, muted joy. And all of a sudden here I am raging at her and she's just sitting back and well, no, it's just your personality. You're not getting any worse. This is just how you are. And yet she'd been my psychiatrist for three years and had never seen those reactions or behaviors before. Wow. So how it could suddenly be my personality after three years makes no sense. Wow. Yeah. It actually took a, an endocrinologist and my GP to figure out what was wrong and to get the proper treatment. Psychiatry gave nothing to it. You've had some, you've had some dandies. Oh, yeah. Wow. The Ooh. next one is you will never get better. That one was spoken by the same one who said that I didn't want to get better. He said that I would never get better. He also, I didn't put this on this one, he also basically told me that I should not have any faith, Christian faith, that I would get better once I quit believing in God, which you don't do. Well, yeah, and you as, probably a, wouldn't. Like, as a trained professional, like, what... Uh... What grounds would he have to make such a make such a claim? That's, that's, that's completely and he bizarre. wouldn't do the same thing to anyone of any other faith, <clears throat> but he was convinced that there was no God, no heaven, and the sooner I figured out that out, the sooner I would get better. 
even though I would never get better. Wow. I really wanted to put his name with some of these. <laughs> wow. On the picture, but I didn't think that was a good idea. It gets and the point the, across for sure without without oh, yeah. his name. Yeah. And people can't see the picture because we're talking on the phone, but the handwriting is very crude. Mm-hmm. It's not a pretty script or anything fancy. Though the crudeness and the roughness of the handwriting is just like the crudeness and roughness that I was spoken to by these psychiatrists. Mm-hmm. The last one, and this one still at times haunts me, and it has been over 20, almost 25 years. It would be best for all concerned if you hurried up and killed yourself. That was said to me by the same psychiatrist who said I would never get better and that I didn't want to get better. That's like I don't know, like what I don't know what the what the goal would be there to uh, if they're trying to make you better. That, that just it's completely out to lunch. I later asked my GP and I said, "Well, what did what, what, why would he do that?" And she said he was assuming that you had a personality disorder, and if he told you to hurry up and kill yourself, you would backpedal and get mad at him. What I did instead was say, wonderful, I'm signing myself up out and going to kill myself. And he said, oh, no. He said, you're not leaving the hospital, and if you try, we're going to hold you against your will. And I'm like, you idiot. You just told me to go do this, and now you're not going to let me go do this. Yeah, wow. You make no sense to me. So that is probably where that came from, was the erroneous belief that I had a personality disorder. But but let's say you did have a personality disorder. What what mm-hmm. possibly is still to be gained from telling someone to go and kill themselves? Like that that I I don't I can't fathom a way in the in which that makes sense. No matter no matter what the situation is. The logic was that I would backpedal in his mind, and no, I'm not going to do that. How can you expo- you know such a horrible thing? And then okay, you see here is your will to live. Let's work on this. And do you understand how you're going from, I'm going to kill myself, to no, I'm not. How could you suggest such a thing? And so I think I kind of surprised him when I, it wasn't really calling his bluff because I I was ready to do what I said I was going to do. But it surprised him that I came back at him as quickly as I did and said, you want me to do that? Fine, I'm going to do that. Yeah, I don't know what else you'd expect, you know, if somebody's in that mm-hmm. kind of place mentally. And what strikes me about this, thank you for sharing the stories behind these and the, uh, and you know, the quotes themselves. What strikes me is that when I read them, I'm like, that seems unbelievable. Like that, that just wouldn't happen. But I have heard these types of stories from other people. And mm-hmm. it, like, you're not the first person to have these crazy uh, things said to them and I just don't know I just don't I don't get it if, if you are if you're a psychiatrist if you're a psychologist you would think you're in that business to get to help people and none of exactly. those none of those quotes you just read off would help anybody no I have been in the mental health system since I was 17 like I say we won't ask a lady's age but <laughs> we're getting towards middle age And in all of that time, I have had two good psychiatrists and one good therapist. And I've had probably five bad ones. 
Are you still with the good ones? Did that work out? I am still with the good one. The one had left to work with the armed forces, so he couldn't see me anymore. Then I had the one who told me that it was just my personality, not my symptoms. And then I've been paired with the doctor that I've still got. He inherited a bit of a mess, but we are still working together and we work well together. That's fantastic. We don't always agree. Pardon? I said that's fantastic to hear that you have a support system that works now. Yes. He and I don't always agree, but he's willing to discuss and explain. And if I'm still not convinced of what he wants to do, he's very respectful. You know, we'll try this for a month. And then if this doesn't work, how about we try what I suggest? Cool. Yeah. So I'm getting my autonomy back with him. I have my autonomy with him. We can discuss as equals. And usually he is, makes a good enough case for what he wants to do that I am willing to go with what he wants. Although there have been times I have dug in my heels. Hmm. And he doesn't get upset. He lets me dig in my heels He'll explain again, and if I still say no, okay, we'll leave that for now, and we'll try, we'll go on another route. That's great. Sounds like you have somebody very understanding and very patient with you. Finally. Yeah. Took some patience of your own to get there, for sure. Uh, before we wrap up on the subject of the of the exhibit, um, mm -hmm. I, was just, I was just curious to know additionally how much time did you have to work on this? Like when, how long did you have to put it together, and how how much time did you put into it, and how many photos did you take? I I only had we only had about ten days to two weeks, I think, to get the pictures. Wow. The paragraphs came fairly easily once I had the pictures. The little blurbs that came with them that I have posted with the pictures at the Matheson Center. Looking at all the pictures, the muted joy had already been taken, so that one was easy. No words. As soon as I saw it in the card store, it was right there. The headstones, the same thing. The hardest one was cutting words. It took me a full day to get up the courage to pull out some markers and write out those words. And it took me about another two hours to get up the nerve to take the picture. Hmm. Because it was so raw and it's still, especially the bottom one, the last one, it would be best for all concerned. That one still, when I'm going through a rough time, that one still runs through my head. Yeah, so imagine. we had about two, two and a half weeks. And then I think we had about three weeks to approve the permanent photo voice display. And that was opened last year, I think May 2nd. How are the, uh, how are the photos presented in the exhibit? Are they on canvas? Are they framed? How are they, how are they presented? They're framed. Nice. They're framed. And they are all of this center. Sorry, I, you cut out there. What did you say? I said they're along the walls of the center, gotcha. posted on the walls. And as the staff come in and out of their offices, they are faced with our various pictures. Hmm. Some of us did provide fo uh, paragraphs to explain. Others did not. And so there's a bit of mystery as to what they were seeing and what they were thinking, what their thought processes were. Whereas with a couple of us, we did provide the paragraphs, and so it makes it 
more obvious where we were coming from. Um, and again, where can you tell people where this is displayed? And uh, just so if, if anybody wanted to go check it out, where could they go? It's called the Matheson Center for Mental Health Education and Research. It is in Calgary, Alberta. You do need to call ahead for permission to come see it as a locked area. And also to make sure that there's no meetings going on, that there would be someone from the staff there to um, let you in and to guide you through. It is on the campus of the Foothills Hospital. It's a rather large campus, so it's kind of hard to find. But it is there. It's on the third floor. And I know when I go down to Calgary later this year, I'm going to stop in again, give a call ahead, and take a look again now with a year behind and not... When the photos were posted and the grand opening came, we were asked to talk about our pictures. And so now to just see them without having to be ready to talk about them, I think would be kind of interesting to look at them at a new angle again. Uh, thank you for thank you for reaching out to us to tell this story about the exhibit. Um, I think it's a fantastic initiative. Um, I I hope that uh, people will go and check it out because it's a, it's just a, it's a neat thing. It's, it's a different way of looking at how to how to explain uh, mental illness, and it's I, I I'm fascinated by it. Uh, before we wrap up, uh, we're short on time, but I I'd still want to know a little bit more about you personally. And uh, okay. what's your what's your story of uh, of mental illness? How did this? Uh, how were you first affected, and how has it affected you through your life? It started when I was in about grade seven, 11, 12 years old. I was being bullied, and the bullying was primarily sexual. So being grabbed from behind, being groped, um, inappropriate things being spoken in my ears. When I got to grade 9, physical abuse came in as well at school. When I went to the school to complain, they said, well, it's right to an education as you do, so you'll just have to avoid them, which is kind of hard when they come and sneak up behind me. Hmm. And through two out of three years of junior high, the sexual bullying happened again. Anywhere from in those five years, it went from the touching, the appropriate touching, the hitting, all the way up to rape threats and graphic descriptions of how I would be assaulted. I was first, the diagnosis first came, I was going for a physical with my doctor, and she started to do some of the examining, and I just melted and froze and started crying and explained what was going on, why I was so upset. And okay, you know what's probably happening here. And so she talked me through what was happening, why I was reacting the way I was, and she started to get me help. But at that time, I was about 17, everything came down very hard. The year leading into me going into post-secondary, my grandmother had had a liver transplant. I had had some trouble with a respiratory condition that was misdiagnosed for over a year. There had been a lot going on. And when I went off to post-secondary and it seemed that I was free, everything was good, everything was wonderful, I crashed. And after trying to keep it hidden for six, eight months, it finally got to the point where I had to be hospitalized. 
and I was hospitalized in 92 and 94. Did okay for a while. There was still depression, still anxiety, but they were more under general control. I could hold my own and keep going. In 2000, I was working as an RN. I was doing both OR and postmortem. And I was in the OR one day, and a case went wrong. Hmm. And I was left alone cleaning up the case, and I saw some things that I never want to see again. And that threw me into a very deep depression. The PTSD that had started with the inappropriate touching and being grabbed from behind went through the roof. I was getting nightmares, everything. Wound up in hospital twice more. There was a diagnosis of bipolar, which was later changed to um, depression or mood disorder not otherwise specified which now under the DSM-5 is unipolar depression with bipolar features. And so I've kind of had a mishmash of diagnoses over the years, but I think finally the PTSD with the unipolar depression with bipolar features and a neurological sensitivity, which I believe was more inborn than anything, is where we're at and what we're trying to work with and trying to bring me to a point where my life is as full as it can be because probably there will be some effect for life. Uh, I don't know if this will, this may not be any consolation, but when I hear your story of what you've been through with the bullying and then the the traumatic experience in the OR, you know, it's it's clear to me that this would, this would affect anybody. So I, I hope that you don't feel like you've, you know, you've reacted to this in a, in a poor way or that other people would handle it better. I think that wh- how, what you've been through is a very, you know, understanding reaction uh, to, to what mm-hmm. you've been through. So if, if that means anything to you, I think that, you know, you, you uh, the fact that you're still seeking treatments and you're still trying to get better is, you know, speaks volumes about your character. Thank you, yes. My psychiatrist, my new one, the one that I'm working with now, when I told him, he wouldn't let me get away without telling him what happened in the OR that day. And when I told him, he went pale. And he said, I don't blame you. He said, that is incredibly traumatic. And that would have, he said, I'm affected by it. And I wasn't there. Just your story has affected me. So... Definitely, I mean, there. I have seen a lot more than I ever want to say I have, and I've been through a good bit. I'm still here, though. I'm still in one piece, which is something. And that wraps things up nicely to my last question, uh, because um, I, it, it just strikes me that you have been through a lot, and you still persist, and you're still you're still trying. You're doing things like getting involved in this project uh, with the art project, and and uh, you know making a difference. And uh, you, you know you speak out in these things. You're not afraid to, and I really appreciate that. And I'm, the last thing I want to ask is, uh, you know, despite all of this and all that you've been through, what keeps you going? Why do you why do you continue to to uh, persist? Well. Apparently in my family, I have been told that both of my grandparents were the most stubborn people my parents ever knew. And then they complained that each other were very stubborn, and now they're saying that I'm very stubborn, and they sound surprised. (laughs) So some of it could just be that I am persistent and stubborn. 
I have one family member left that I care for and love very dearly. And so for her, I'm holding on. My faith helps me through. I know that if there's something going on, I can just even go hide in my church or my pastor will come. He has dealt with depression, and so he can help guide me through as well. He's not judgmental. He's very open and honest and caring. That's fantastic. And some days, I'm not sure how I do it. Some days, it's just getting through the day until I can either take a nap and rest and just get away from the world for a bit, or until something comes and changes things a little bit and maybe the day perks up a bit. Well, I'll keep doing what you're doing because, uh, you know, I really appreciate that everything I just said, that, that you're still going, you're still trying, uh, you know, speaks volumes about your character. Keep doing what you're doing and, uh, and don't let up. Uh, Luke, do you have any other questions? No, I, I, I think you guys uh, have covered uh, quite the wide breadth of everything in this. It's been great having you on. Thank you so much, gentlemen. Uh, Colette, do you have uh, are you are you a private person, or do you have social media, or any way to you'd like people to contact you if they have questions, or do you just want to keep that to yourself? I am on Twitter under Very Tired Girl. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, fatigue is a part of depression, yep, yep. and that was no how question. I felt that day. Yep, and no. most of the other nicknames I use uh, were already taken, so that one came up. That would probably be the best way. Okay. I do check that at least once a day. Uh, for Facebook, I mainly keep two people that I know. Gotcha. Okay. So if anybody wants to uh, reach out to Colette for questions, get her at Very Tired Girl on Twitter. Right. Uh, Colette, thank you so much for joining us. It's it's been a pleasure. And uh, take care and uh, keep in touch with uh, any any developments any new developments you have going on. Thank you so much. It's All been right. good to talk to you. Take care. That was uh, that conversation didn't necessarily go where I thought it was going to go. We spent a lot of time on the art exhibit, but it was, yeah. it, was it was really neat what she had to say about all the photos. Yeah, it's kind of funny at the end when you were like, "Well, we're going to wrap up, but I just want to know about you." And it was kind of sitting there like, "Oh yeah, I guess we haven't really talked about yeah. specifically your story yet." But I think that speaks to how good the conversation was that we went for. I don't know. I'm trying to look at my time here and get a, an idea. Probably like 50-ish minutes before yeah. before we even touched yeah. on her story. That's how interesting and the art exhibit and everything that goes with it is. What I like about doing podcasts is that there's no time constraints. However, uh, at this moment, we have uh, we have an, another uh, set of guests waiting to come in. So we, we're crunched for time and uh, and uh, wanted. I wanted to. We could have went for another half hour. Probably. Oh yeah, at least. At least. Yeah. Anyway, just big thanks to Colette, and uh, if you're in the Calgary area, I hope you go check out that exhibit. It's uh, Make sure to follow her instructions, though, yeah. <laughs> because it's yeah. not just open to the public necessarily, yeah, like so you've got to call, call ahead, and yeah, yeah don't, just, don't just show up and, and try to get in, because you can't necessarily do that, but, yeah. but it seems like it's open if you call, yeah. so you definitely should. Yeah, great, great uh, initiative, and I, I love how it just kind of tells the mental health story in a different way. Uh, anyway, get us on uh, wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, usually I read off a list of where our podcast is at. That list is gone from my app now. So it's it's on a whole bunch of places. So uh, yeah. mainly if you have an Android phone, get it on Google Podcasts or Google Play Music if, if you subscribe to Google Play Music. And if you have an Apple phone, just get it on Apple Podcasts. Other than that, like, what are you doing if you don't have one of those apps? Wow, that feels that feels like I feel personally attacked right now yeah, because I, know you, I use a secondary yeah. podcast app. <laughs> It's on most apps. Um, yes. 
if you're an avid listener like Luke, who listens to a bunch of podcasts on an obscure app, uh, <laughs> you you can probably get it there too. You can. I can confirm <laughs> that if you use Podcast Addict, you can get the podcast on there. There you go. Uh, get me on Twitter at J-D-I-C-K-I-E or send me a message on Facebook Messenger. Oh, and I'm on Twitter at the Elvermeer, T-H-E-L-V-E-R-M-E-E-R. Just retweeting those podcast tweets. I do other things. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, like, rate, review, subscribe, share this podcast, and thank you for listening. We'll talk to you soon.